Ring around the rosy, a pocket full of posies. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. <laughs> In the year 1993, Bill Clinton was president of the United States and working to establish NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. The Palestinian Liberation Organization and Israel signed an accord granting Palestinians immediate administrative control over the Gaza Strip and Jericho, and calling for negotiation within the next two years to finally settle the future of a quest for the Palestinian state. Hopes were high that the dispute over the border between the two countries could be quickly and peacefully resolved so that a joint effort to harness water resources, protect the environment, and develop the Dead Sea region could be put in place. And, in 1993, two little boys who lived in Rush Springs, Oklahoma, the watermelon capital of the world, killed a man who seems to be going down in history as the meanest dad around. Welcome to the Parasite Podcast. I'm Sherry. And I'm Marie. And today we're talking about the murder of Lonnie Wayne Dutton by his sons, Herman Luther and Drury Wayne Dutton. Just a heads up, this episode contains instances of murder, familial abuse, cruelty, and a reference to sex trafficking. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, please subscribe to it or hit follow while we chat. Lonnie Wayne Dutton was a bully. According to his sister Linda Munn, and sisters always know, Lonnie had always been a bully and a bit of a sadist. He had been abusive to his two older sisters, he was later abusive to his wife Rose Marie, and he was even a bully to children. One cousin talks about how he would play a game with infants. He would flick them hard on the head until they cried. He thought it was very fun. Lonnie's dad Luther disagrees. He claims Lonnie was a good boy who collected soda bottles to raise money to buy a piglet that he could raise to be a prize hog each year. But he didn't give any examples of how Lonnie could be kind. Neighbors and friends only said that Lonnie was vindictive. Oh, and a liar and a thief. Everyone also said most interactions between Luther and Lonnie would end in violence and that his mom, Nancy, favored and indulged him. Oh, okay, so he had a troubled relationship with his dad, too. Yes, he did. We'll get into that a little more a little later. Okay. So Lonnie grew up to be an unemployed oil field worker with a reputation for erratic behavior and heavy drinking. Lonnie and Rosemarie married in 1975. They hauled their shabby trailer and young family onto the property owned and inhabited by Lonnie's parents, Luther and Nancy Dutton, in the small town of Rush Springs, Oklahoma. Their home was a sun-blistered, bullet-ridden trailer located up a trail behind a gate that boasted a private property sign and was decorated with the bones of dead animals and 11 catfish heads. Oh, that sounds kind of scary. And not very welcoming at all. No. The family went without electricity and running water most of the time. They didn't have a telephone and they didn't have a TV. Herman and Drewy shared a bed that lacked a mattress. Family members said they would honk their horn when they turned into the dirt driveway, fearful that they'd be shot if they took Lonnie by surprise. It's crazy to me that this is 1993. This feels like maybe 1920. 
I cannot believe that two boys were sharing a bed without a mattress. That sounds awful. That's nothing. Wait till you hear what their lives were like. Oh dear, okay. So, six months after the wedding, Lonnie started physically abusing his new bride. He didn't just hit her. According to the Oklahoman, she alleges he would put a fist in her face and stomp on her once she fell to the ground. She would often sport black eyes, a swollen nose, a variety of bruises, and aching ribs during their marriage. Despite the abuse, they had three sons and one daughter. Herman, James, James goes by Drewy, Sissy, and Jake. In 1980, the Duttons replaced their shabby trailer for another one that was in almost as bad of shape. But the new old trailer was not yet rife with bullet holes and all of the light fixtures hadn't been shot out. Lonnie really was out of control. They pushed the old, old trailer off into the woods and abandoned it. The trailer was riddled with bullet holes because Dad was just shooting at the trailer? Yes. Lonnie would get drunk and shoot out everything. Okay. Although the trailer didn't have the best of accommodations, they were living on 20 acres of Lonnie's parents' land, so he was able to run a small farm. He would wander around the property, his shaved head shining in the sun, wearing a pair of overalls that covered his 5-foot, 7-inch, 200-pound frame, and concealing the pistol he tucked in the bib pocket of his overalls. The family planted tomatoes and okra. They also raised a collection of chickens, turkeys, quail, and a goat. His boys and wife, well, until she was gone, were responsible for the weeding and the work that went into growing and harvesting the crops. Lonnie loved free labor, and he worked everyone hard. Not only did Herman and Drewy have an abnormal workload for a couple of little boys, they were usually the ones to take care of the younger kids. All of the kids were described as scrawny, dirty, and poorly dressed. But they were good kids. The neighbors say they could hear the kids screaming and crying at all times of the day and night, and everybody noticed all the bruises and black eyes that those little kids suffered. If anyone dared ask, the kids would say they fell down or a sibling hit them on accident. That got the adults off the hook, and they would ask no more questions. Nobody wanted to mess with Lonnie Dutton. He sounds pretty scary, but I can't imagine living on the family farm and nobody stands up for the kids. You know, I agree with you, but Lonnie was known as the town crazy man. This dude had major anger and alcohol issues and everyone was afraid of him. According to the Washington Post and the Democrat and Chronicle, he was a wild-eyed, drunken mountain man with a scraggly beard that he twisted into two points, like a goat. Hmm. And boy, was he a cruel man. He physically and mentally abused his wife and kids with regularity, and he was brutal and vindictive in a way that is difficult to describe. According to the Washington Post and the New York Times, everyone had a story about how mean and cantankerous this man was. He'd been noted as the local bully since he was a teen. When the Lindsay Rural Electric Co-op needed to replace a meter on the Dunton trailer, they couldn't find a meter man in town who was willing to go out there. So he had quite the reputation. Yes, he had a terrible reputation in that town. Mm -hmm. Once Lonnie got into a minor disagreement with a neighbor, and Lonnie angrily backed his pickup truck through that neighbor's fence, destroying it. And the neighbor didn't even press charges because he was afraid that Lonnie would become even more violent. And when he wanted to go out drinking, Lonnie would load his entire family into the truck and head to town. 
He instructed Rosemary and the kids to pull up posts from the neighboring farm fences while he was in drinking. He could sell those at the local flea markets for 50 cents apiece. Eventually, the local farmers tired of this, and about 20 of them went to the police. But the police seemed to be afraid of him, too. And after a bit of a bruja, the police decided there was no evidence causing them to take action against Lonnie and the family. After the accusations, many of those farmers' hayfields were burned to the ground, and of course there was no evidence regarding that either. That's so strange. The police must have been really scared of him. That man was a terrorist. On occasion, Herman would have to drive his drunken father home from the bars. Wait, Herman was only 15 when they killed Lonnie. How was he driving his dad home? Herman was driving from a really young age because when his dad was drunk, he was the designated driver. So probably from the age of maybe 11 or 12, he was driving dad around if dad was drunk. It's a lot of responsibility for a son. Herman had more responsibility than you can imagine. Lonnie would also send his kids into the local bait shop to steal. He would praise the child who came out with the huge take and punish the child who had stolen the lesser amount. He would punish him with slaps and he would yell at him. Herman would often come up short-handed because he was willing to take the thrashing to spare his younger brother. When Lonnie came into the local shop, he would buy himself cigarettes, a sandwich, and a six-pack. He would also buy a nickel cup of coffee for the boys to share. That's a lot that's going on, and I understand that small towns sometimes work differently, but it's very disturbing that nobody did anything to take these boys away, or it sounds like they should have arrested Lonnie for a number of things. Yes, I think that Lonnie had a lot of things going on there, and no one was willing to deal with him. In fact, everybody talked about Lonnie like he was some sort of awkward zoning problem, but no one ever considered what life was like for his kids while they were complaining about him. this family survived. It sounds like Rosemary was abused before she ever had any children, and the children were regularly abused too. I'm honestly more surprised this didn't result in the death of one of the children. Rosemary escaped this terrible marriage in 1989. She was tired of the regular beatings, the times her husband would throw knives at her, the times he shot at her feet to make her dance, and even the times when he forced his crying children to throw steel-tipped darts at her and Sissy. It's terrible. I can't believe she stuck it out for 15 years. I can't either. Did she take the children with her? Well, when she fled to Texas to live with her mom, she took the two youngest, Sissy and Jake. She was hoping that Lonnie would be happy enough with the two older boys to just kind of leave her alone. That sounds like a horrible thing to sacrifice your two oldest children. I know, right? But Lonnie was not pleased in the least. He headed to Texas, that's where he'd heard she'd gone, and he beat her for the last time, and her mom called the police on him. Good for her. I agree. Lonnie returned to Oklahoma, and they divorced, agreeing to a split custody agreement, which was based on their current living arrangement. But then, Jake came to visit his dad in 1990, so just a few months after the divorce, carrying tales of group sex and adults shooting up drugs. Lonnie alleged it was heroin. Oof, that sounds even worse than what they were living with at home. Well, long story short, Lonnie filed a petition to modify, and during the proceedings, he repeated those stories to the courts, requesting sole custody. He won the custody fight, 
and the kids were all going to live with him from then on out. He had custody of all four kids. On the way home from Texas, Sissy also regaled her dad and her grandpa with tales about being shot up with drugs, having group sex with the adults in the house, and being locked in her bedroom when the sex got too wild. What is wilder than having sexual interactions with a child? I don't know, and I really don't want to find out. It's pretty bad when the better parent is the one who beats them. Well, I think we can all agree that Lonnie was a terrible parent, but it sounds like Marie was a pretty terrible parent, too. That's true. Marie refutes the stories told by the children. She says Human Services reported these allegations to be unfounded, but no one has access to any of those records. Nevertheless, Lonnie was finally awarded full custody of all four kids. Wait, who's Marie? Oh, Marie is Rosemarie. I use her name interchangeably here because her name was used interchangeably through everything. Okay. So she must go by both depending on where she is. She says Human Services reported these allegations to be unfounded, but no one has any access to any of these records. Everyone felt that Lonnie receiving full custody of the kids was a big favor to the kids. But this favor was not really a big favor. Their dad was harsh. He would punish them when they were bad, and he would punish them when they were good. He'd make them steal things because he enjoyed watching their fear and discomfort. It almost seemed like their dad didn't care how they turned out. He just needed someone to punish all the time. Was he making them steal things just because he liked it, or were they really that poor? It may have been a mix of both. They were stealing worms and fishing lures, and he fished a lot. Hmm. Well, they stole beer, too, so maybe a little of both. Oh, so six of one, half a dozen of the other. That's right. With Rosemarie out of his hair, he knew there was too much work on the farm for him to handle, and he needed help. So he created a division of labor that would work for him. The Washington Post shared his division of labor as follows. Herman and Drewy worked the farm, and after the harvest, they pickled okra and made pickle relish and canned it. Using the welfare money, they paid all of the bills as far as the money would spread. They used their grandparents' phone to call bill collectors and beg them for just a few more days when the money didn't spread far enough. They also took total care of the younger kids, and they changed the oil in Lonnie's old pickup truck and made sure that it kept running. And to be fair, they would also drive this truck when they had to. Which was very illegal because they were both under the age of 15. They were little boys. That's crazy. Lonnie did anything he wanted to do. This is his division of labor. He'd cash the welfare check so the boys could pay the bills. He'd trade scrap metal for cash so he could buy guns and bullets. He made a homebrew in the crawl space under the trailer, and he kept his recipe for his wildcat whiskey nailed to the kitchen wall. He'd use it to wash down the downers that he liked taking. And he'd shoot things, mostly just for fun. When the kids were lucky, he'd shoot a deer. He also shot at trees, poles, the trailer they lived in, both inside and out. Neighbors say they often had to dodge bullets that ricocheted into their yards. When the kids were unlucky, he'd shoot at them for fun. The kids actually were always unlucky because Lonnie had a penchant for beating his kids, too. He'd use fists, a hose, and even two-by-fours to wallop them when they were bad, when he was mad, when he was drunk, and when he just felt like it. There was more of this for them now that their mom was gone, but according to the Los Angeles Times, he was always protective of Sissy. 
She was only 10 years old, but for their whole lives, Lonnie had impressed upon these boys the importance of keeping their sister safe. In fact, he would lecture his boys on this topic, always ending with this charge. And this was a quote, Don't let anyone mess with Sissy. If anyone ever messes with Sissy, shoot them behind the ear or in the heart. You kill them. Well, at least he taught them one moral strength. Yes, but this would also turn out to be his downfall. (laughs) Lonnie was a pretty terrible and terrifying dad, and everybody knew it. But nobody felt they could really do anything about it without imperiling their own lives and the lives of their families. Most of the reports that were called in complaining that the children were being abused were anonymous calls because everyone was afraid of Lonnie. I can see why people would do that, but I can't believe his grandparents didn't just bundle them up and run off. That's interesting, too. We're getting to that. Lonnie worked hard to socially isolate these terrified kids, and he kept them away from everybody, even their family, which I know sounds really weird when they're living on Grandpa's property. Well, with 20 acres, I think it might not be that hard. That's true. They didn't see a lot of each other. Neighbors and family members claimed that they called the Chickasha County's Department of Human Services numerous times to report the children were being physically abused by their father. DHS had no comment regarding these claims, but the records show that DHS and or the police had been there at least six times to investigate complaints, but they always came up empty. How do you walk up to a trailer riddled with bullet holes, with a whiskey recipe pinned to the wall, with dirty, skinny children, covered in bruises, and walk away saying, "Mm, this seems normal? It is so beyond me, I can't even tell you. And the town does get a lot of pushback for this. Mm -hmm. But again, they feel that they couldn't do much because everyone was afraid of Lonnie. The junior high school principal, where Herman had just finished the 8th grade, went on record saying he never saw any signs of problems. He said, and I quote, He's a good kid. That's why this is so shocking down here. It caught the entire community off guard, glossing over the fact that the school had indeed noted problems, but had glossed over those facts too. He also called Herman an all-American boy, except that he was, quote-unquote, walking around with a deep, dark secret, which is true. That's true. Herman was maintaining the secret to keep his family together, I'm sure. It sounds like he was very much the only parent in that household. Right. And what's going on is something that people don't really understand. I'm going to call it clanning because it's something that we've recognized, but I haven't seen any literature on it. Clanning is this weird thing that happens to kids all the time, and it's so invisible that it confuses people. First, there's social isolation, which we're seeing here. Mm -hmm. The Grandpa Luther did this with his family, too. Neighbors said that the Duttons had always kept to themselves, and Luther let his family know that their business was no one else's. So Lonnie learned it from his own father. Yes, and I think that this clanning does come through family conditioning. Mm -hmm. So coupled with the clanning is trauma bonding. The kids are abused individually, and they can't really make it on their own. So in order to get through this trauma, they have to band together in a way that is really healthy in wartime, which is where they are, but not healthy in a normal family. It's called enmeshing. Mm -hmm. I've heard of enmeshment. Right. 
So utilizing the two of those together creates kind of a desperate confederacy that helps them survive the ordeal that they call their childhoods, but it later leaves them unable to navigate a healthy, functional adult relationship if they don't get help later. The third part of this condition is an ultra-polite facade with a very gruff dad. From a very young age, children are strictly held to the expectation that they will exhibit impeccable manners and a large degree of agreeability to outsiders. The children are convinced that this is the only way they can be loved or accepted. They're never enough just as a person, and their personal feelings are verboten. Dad is the only spokesperson for the group and the only human allowed to move freely and do and feel as he pleases. That makes sense. The dad doesn't have to regulate even his own emotions, but the children must always be pleasant. Right. And this is how people create these clans where the children are very polite to outsiders because they understand outsiders and insiders very well. They protect their clan or their group from everything, and the children are very responsible to do this. Mm -hmm. The other part is, of course, secret keeping. Secret keeping is enforced with brutal punishment. Everything is a secret because the parents aren't sure which clues are going to set off an inquiry. And we have seen clanning quite a bit. Right. I think clanning is one of the biggest signs that there is an abusive family structure, which is unexpected. I think a lot of people think that an abused kid will come to them and beg for help, and they won't because they've been taught from a very young age that outsiders are not to be trusted and that they will take them away from the only people who love them, their siblings. Right. Even if they want to leave their parents, they don't want to leave their siblings. The younger siblings don't want to leave the people taking care of them, their older siblings. And the older siblings know that their younger siblings will not be as safe under the care of strangers as they are with them, the people who love them. Right, and it goes even a little deeper than that because these kids are living in this war zone, but they know that if they hang together, they can be safe. And the father is like a menace to society, but they know that they're safer than society. Mm -hmm. So even though they're not safe, they feel safer than they would be if they were part of society in general. Because they're his. So they feel protected by the father? They feel protected by the father as compared to the rest of society. He's not going to kill them, although he'll beat them, but he's out there shooting and stabbing other people. Oh, okay. So it's, it's really a weird phenomenon, but it's something that starts to help people understand why these kids are so very polite and don't seem to have problems. They're not really keeping a secret like a red-collar criminal is. Mm -hmm. They are protecting the primacy of their clan, the privacy of their clan. Mm -hmm. So when people say, oh, it's secret-keeping, it kind of misses what's really happening there in that dynamic. It's a really complicated dynamic. And it's very hard, I think, to understand why, if you're being abused and someone says, are you okay? Why they would make an excuse like, oh, I fell down the stairs. You're right. These kids were just kids. They knew they didn't have the power to fix things or to make their lives even better. And they were confused to think that no one was noticing their plight. The authorities had visited the house over six times over the past few years, and the kids, always polite and cooperative, never ever said their injuries were received at the hands of their father, which we understand because of clanning. So the kids forlornly watched the taillights of DHS or the police disappear down their dirt road driveway. 
They'd heard so many stories about how adults tried to save little kids from scary situations and nobody was coming to save them or even to tell their dad to stop being so harsh. With nowhere else to turn, the kids turned to prayer. They prayed that someone would notice they needed help. How was this need not obvious to others? They didn't understand how they were trapping themselves Mm-hmm. with their clowning behaviors. And what they didn't understand, too, is how afraid everyone was of Lonnie Dunn. When help didn't materialize, the kids changed their tactics. They simply prayed fervently that their daddy would change, and they held on to the faith that God would somehow deliver them. One hot July afternoon, July 12, 1993 to be exact, they learned one interpretation of James 2.26, the scripture that says faith without works is dead. The boys were out weeding the garden when Sissy came outside and shared some upsetting news. Her dad had been messing with her. The boys put their heads together to plan. They knew what they had to do. The boys had a cousin who they liked a lot. His name was Wayne Munns, and he would show up on occasion to check on the kids and to take the boys fishing. On this day, he was turning up that dirt driveway adorned with animal bones to do just that when, according to the Washington Post, he stopped in his tracks as he watched Lonnie's truck come barreling down the road. He was surprised to find the truck filled with four sobbing kids instead of Lonnie. Herman was driving and looked just hysterical. Wayne, expecting to hear about an accident involving a drunken dad and a ricocheting bullet, asked, What's wrong? And Herman said, I think I just killed Daddy. Stunned, Wayne asked, What do you mean? And Herman sobbed. We was down in the garden. Sissy came running down there. She said Daddy had been messing with her, putting his hands down her pants and stuff. So I went down to the trailer and shot him. According to the boys, after carefully conferring with each other and considering their approach, Herman and Drewy knew that neither of them could handle that gun alone. It was a gun that Lonnie had given to Herman for Christmas that year. They had always depended on teamwork to get the job done, and this time was no different. So, Herman, who had the strength, held the deer rifle, aimed at his napping father's head, right behind his ear, and Drewy, who had the nerve, pulled the trigger. They had shot him right behind the ear just like their dad had told them to do. Wayne had no choice. He comforted the boys and called the police. That would be terrible news, but honestly, Wayne had to be a little relieved too. I think so. I think that everyone had to be relieved. Yeah, it sounds like maybe they wanted to do something about this man, but nobody was prepared to go to jail for it. Right. So Wayne is Dinah's son, I believe. And is so he's so Dinah was Lonnie's sister. Yeah. Wayne is Lonnie's sister's son. So he was very aware of not just the family dynamics with Lonnie, but the family dynamics with Luther. Mm-hmm. He understood this clanism. And he understood what Lonnie was doing with the kids, and he was very uncomfortable with it. He was an ex-policeman, and he felt he couldn't do anything for these kids except to be nice to them. Yeah, and it sounds like he showed up for them on occasion. Yes, which was very nice of him. Yeah, I'm glad there was someone there for them right after this. That would be a hard day for a kid. Yeah, I think so too. And I'm very glad that he was showing up that day. That was very fortuitous. 
So shortly after their arrest, Howard and Drewy's community actually came together in a town meeting to discuss what they had done. 200 people showed up and nobody, nobody had a good word for the dead man. Now that Lonnie was no longer a threat to their own safety, this community came out stronger for these boys than they ever did for even the watermelon festival. Many people had known about the abuse, but they hadn't reported it. Others had tried to report it to no avail. There was an outpouring of compassion for these children in their plight. One relative suggested, and I quote again, his kids should be given purple hearts and sent home. Herman's attorney probably put it best. There are the most innocent kids I've ever defended. Most of the time you find out about these kids after they're dead. That makes sense. They were subjected to horrible abuse. They were. They were conscripted into terrorism, I think. Mm-hmm. The town mobilized and used their watermelon festival skills to create strong supports for these kids. Their aunt, Linda Munn, headed up the efforts. A Save Herman and Drewy headquarters was set up in town in a donated vacant saloon. Phone and utility companies offered their services for free support for the effort. Blue ribbons were attached to every lamppost, door, mailbox, window, and car antenna. Even the mailbox at Lonnie's trailer sported dozens of blue bows. Everybody who had known Herman and Drewy were conscripted into service as spokespersons who went on camera extolling the virtues of these two boys. Even the boys who had shunned and bullied them in the past came to appreciate what they had done and became spokespeople for the boys. The townspeople even showed up at the courthouse for each of the hearings decked out in those blue ribbons carrying signs in support of the boys. The townspeople took the boys' travails public, and there was an outpouring of support for this family from around the world. They were interviewed by Geraldo Rivera, and 48 Hours did an entire episode about them. Money, clothes, letters of support, and more came pouring in to support the boys and help them move their lives forward. Those who had organized on the boys' behalf started working with Mothers Against Sexual Abuse. They wanted to use the donations to hire the best attorney for parasite offenders, Irvin Box. He'd gotten Billy Joe Powell a pretty good deal after she killed her dad in Cement, Oklahoma in 1992. We'll cover her story in a future episode. But cooler heads prevailed, and everyone realized they could save their money. A really good attorney is needed when there is a question of what happened or a question regarding how it happened, or when you're completely guilty and hope to mitigate your case in some way. In this case, everyone knew the man those boys had shot, and they already had a pair of good attorneys who were assigned to their cases. The entire town knew Lonnie was a violent and vindictive man. Everyone in this small town knew that these boys were good kids who had never even been in trouble. And everyone seemed to know that the only thing that got this dad shot were his own instructions. If anyone messes with Sissy, you kill him. Thank you for joining us this week. Tune in next week for part two, where we will cover the outcome of their murder charges, how they grew up, and as a bonus, we will give you a taste of the research underpinning our work. We'd like to thank Jade Brown for our theme music and the Oklahoman, the Democratic Chronicle, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Sacramento Bee, and the Californian for a variety of information and the photos we used for this show. 
You can see the photos at Parasite.org. Just click on the Parasite podcast once you get to the website. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. If you know of a parasite that you would like to see covered here, please send us the name of the parasite offender and we'll add it to our list. And if you have any questions about parasites, let us know and we'll answer that question. We did have one listener write in and ask us a question. They wanted to know how many total parasites occur in the United States every year. Let me start by saying that the numbers we're about to share with you are numbers of completed parasites. There are many more children who tried to kill their parents and failed. The latest information we have, I'll give you 2015, 2016, and 2017. There were 274 parasites in 2015, 279 parasites in 2016, and 307 parasites in 2017. These would be split between youthful parasites and adult parasites. If you look at our website, parasite.org, you can see them for yourself. Okay, that's all for today. See you next Tuesday. Ashes, ashes, we all fall down. (laughs) 